You're listening to audio from the Portland Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to our ministry, please visit www.portlandchurch.org. I want us to begin a study of tomorrow. And so, and you say, well, you know, today I was talking to McKinsey for a few minutes and she was like, wait a minute, which tomorrow? I was like, very good, you know, there are, there is more than one Tamar um, in, uh, in the Old Testament, um, but I want us to do a, a study, turn over to Matthew chapter 1, and if this is going to take more than one time together, and I don't think there's any way that we would be able to do the entire story and go as deep as I think we need to go to learn what we need to learn from her and her life about God and about how God works without us taking more time. So, because to do Tamar, you have to do Judah. So you have to understand Judah and Tamar. Okay? And then, in order to understand Judah, you have to understand Joseph. Because without Joseph and his story, you really don't ever understand Judah. So it's just, it kind of backs up, and we have to sort of scan out for a little bigger picture. Now, I said there's more than one tomorrow. Anybody know who those are? Um, that there's tomorrow that has kind of a bad reputation, to be honest. There's Tamar and Judah in that story. But then there's also the Tamar that was David, King David's daughter and granddaughter. Okay? So King David, you know, the man after God's own heart, and Absalom, his son, both named their daughters Tamar, which is very interesting of itself, especially since we've been fed made to believe, let me say it nicely, made to believe that Tamar was not all that great of a person. So if she, if that were true and she were not all that great of a person, I guarantee that King David would not have named his daughter Tamar and Absalom would not have named his daughter Tamar. Because especially during those times in history, your name really meant something. It, it more was your uh, characterization sort of of you. You know, it wasn't just. It was sort of the dreams for you. The, the names meant a lot. And um, so they would not have named um, their daughters Tamar if the, if the great grandmother, okay, hadn't been someone wonderful or the second grade or whatever it is. So, um, so anyway, so I wanted to give that idea. Now also, you say, who is Tamar? Look at Matthew chapter 1. You know, when they did genealogies back when this genealogy, when the Gospels were written, when they did genealogies, they, did ne they never included women. That was just not part of it. It was just very unusual for there to be a woman mentioned in a genealogy. But Matthew does something interesting. He mentions five. Which is just, it's almost like he's making a point. It wasn't just there was some clarification. He just wanted to make sure you knew which one. So it, he put the mom in there too. No, 
down. It's like he was making a point. And of those five, it's interesting who they are. The first one, it says in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now she's mentioned very clearly, Judah was the father, but this is the mother. The mother was Tamar. So I want to think, like I said, her reputation has really been taken a beating over the years. And several of you shook your head, you know, you nodded yes when I said that because you've been around the Bible and you've heard lessons maybe or you've read things and you've heard well that yeah, she was she was a rough customer. You know, some people really look down on her. And yet there's another side to that story which very often there is. Um, so, you know, then you go on down in verse 5, it says Rahab, right? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, we talked about that when we studied Ruth, right? That Rahab was Obed, um, it says Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So Boaz's mother was Rahab, and then he married Ruth, right? Boaz married Ruth. And um, so they are both mentioned. We've talked about that in our lessons before. But then if you go on, it says in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, now we're going to take that because we know who Uriah's wife was. Who was that? Bathsheba, exactly. Another woman that has her reputation has definitely taken a beating over time. And, and of course, Rahab, one of the ways she's known was that former prostitute. And, um, and then Ruth, there's always this little question of why she went to him at night and put the cover over, you know, his cover off of her feet and ask him to cover, all of that, okay? It's very interesting how each one of these four, there's this little question about their morality. And yet, if you study these out, what should be remembered about these women is really something else about each one of them. But we have to kind of polish off their reputations. We've got to decide what we're going to know and believe about these women and really study. So I thought that it would be good. Of course, the fifth one is Mary. And of course, she was the unmarried, uh, you know, pregnant, but virgin, but, but betrothed. And, you know, there was a question about her being uh, divorced, put away or not. So even her, it seems like when these women are mentioned, it's very interesting that there's a negative side. And it's almost like, you know, since Eve, there's been this, this feeling, this portrayal down through the years that women are temptresses. That women have something innately kind of questionable about their character. That you need to be careful with them. 
that they need to be careful to not tempt. And there's this, there's this negative, which is very interesting. If you really study and look through scriptures, that is not very often what you really see in these women or their lives. So I think that, that it's good for us to study out who Tamar is and figure out. Because when we read the story tonight, I think you will see very clearly why there was a bit, there, there's a bit of a, a question about her, um, her morality or about um, sort of who she was and what her story and of course, over the years, you know, we've, we've studied different things, and I've read books about her and, and all, and <clears throat> you may have too. But even when I mentioned this to Steve back a few months ago or a year ago, I can't even remember. When I mentioned to him, he, it's like I could tell his eyebrows sort of went up, and I said, Tamar, and I thought, oh, not you too. <laughs> you know, I really did. I thought, and I said, why did you get that look? You know, and he was like, well, I, I mean, there were some things, you know, I mean, you know her story. And I said, yes, yes, we should talk about this sometime. So anyway, so we had to talk through it. I had to tell him about some of the things that, that, you know, I think that have been said that are actually not justified. I think there's a misunderstanding very often about scripture that puts women in a bad light if we're not careful. And so I think that we've got to be good sisters to her. And um, we've got to kind of, you know, polish off her reputation. But anyway, I want us to begin and read her story. Like I said, we're going to have to back up next time and look at the bigger picture. But tonight I want us to read her story and look at it. And then we'll kind of go back to uh, who Judah was, what was going on before and after. Because the, one of the things we're going to get into is the difference she made in Judah's life. That, you know, Jesus was called the Lion of Judah. Judah was a very important character, a very important person in biblical history. And yet, without Tamar, we don't even know what would have happened. She changed his life completely from a very dark side to the light. And so I think that we're going to be able to study that in the, in the weeks to come as well. So but let's look. Let's look at who she is, okay? Who is she? Um, in chapter 38 of Genesis, of course we're going to dig in here about Genesis, in Genesis 38, and it says it begins at that time. Now I want you to make note of that because we're going to come back to that in the next lesson and go into it more deeply. But right now I'm just going to say what had just happened was horrible. It was one of the most horrible things that is recorded in the entire Bible. Okay? Bottom line, Judah had just sold his younger brother into slavery. And that's the account in the, the chapter before. And then at the end of that story, it says, at that time, Judah left his brothers 
and went down to stay with a man of Adelon named Hero. I think that next time we'll go into probably why, why he just left. But if that, have you ever done anything so terrible or felt like it was so bad you just wanted to run? Or at least you can relate to that story, that happening, that you just want to isolate yourself and get away. Well, that's what we see in Judah's life, is that he just left. He just ran from family, and it looks to be even from God. So let's go on. Chapter 38, verse 2. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shua. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Now, first of all, I want us just to remember a little bit about um, even our study last spring, okay? What is bizarre? Tell me, what is bizarre about Judah going down to where he is and meeting a Canaanite man named Shua, meeting his daughter, and then marrying her? What's odd about that? What's scandalous about that? She was not an Israelite, right? They absolutely did not believe in marrying outside their faith, outside their people, okay? I mean, this was so strong. I mean, think about Abraham sending. I mean, they sent far away to find just a wife for these, for these guys to make sure that she was a woman of faith that she was an Israelite, a part of God's people. They, I mean, that is the culture. That is the nature. But see, this is another thing that we learn about Judah here. He just leaves, meets this woman, and marries her. Doesn't seem like there was any hesitation. It's almost like he didn't even consider not. It, it, there's no story about it. It's just It shows where he is in life. In verse 6, it says, So Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty as her brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Now what's going on? We've studied this, right? So we're good at this. We've figured out all this Levirate law, and we understand this stuff, at least sort of, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we get it. So he goes and gets his son a wife. Doesn't sound like he went very far, right? He did for his son what he did for himself. He went and got Tamar. So, and he gives her to her. Now, he... Ur dies because he's wicked, which is pretty interesting. It's the word that the Bible uses for Haman, 
Remember who Haman is? Remember the really evil bad guy in, the, in Esther's story? Haman, the one that wanted to destroy every Jew that ever lived just because he was insulted that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him? You know, he was called wicked. Well, that's the same word, this wicked. So we don't know how what Ur was into or what it was about. But I would say that this Tamar, she's given to him and he's a wicked man. Now in this culture, it sounds like it took pretty a lot to be called wicked, okay? So we would imagine that there was some suffering that had to go, that went along with being married, being given to a wicked man. So wicked that God steps in and ends him. That's pretty wicked. So, our first little introduction to Tamar. And then she's supposed to be given to the brother, right? Now, remember why? So, he, Judah has three sons. The oldest one, he gets a wife, and the son dies. So, what is the wife supposed to do? The honorable, right thing to do was to be given to the next brother, okay, her dead husband's brother, sleep with him, be his wife, sleep with him, and the first child that she bears takes the first son's place, okay? You say, Okay, you know, remember we have culture shock when we do this. We always have culture shock. We, I mean, all of us are like, this ancient culture is just almost too much for our brains when we really try to think through it. But we, we have to just, you know, we got to go with it, okay? You know, sort of swallow the culture shock. This is the way it was done. You say, but why? Why was this important? Well, remember that the becoming extinct was the worst fear. It was their, their most horror fear. I mean, this is the thing they dreaded the most. And so to, they had to have an heir. And for that name to go on. So this first brother that now is dead without an heir, well, the second brother is supposed to, to sacrifice and his widow is supposed to sacrifice and they are supposed to have a son so that her heir, er, er, her first husband, the firstborn son, will his lineage will go on. And one of the reasons this is important, you know, God calls us to love each other and to be sacrificial with one another. You remember that? Okay. Well, this is all part of that is for these people to be willing to sacrifice, lay down their lives to do what is best for this dead earth, okay, this dead guy. And now he doesn't seem like he deserved that he was wicked, right? But I guess that, that didn't even matter. This was the, what was supposed to be done. Now, the firstborn son gets double portion of the wealth of the family. So when Judah dies, Ur was the firstborn son. He's supposed to get double portion, and there were two more brothers. So it's almost like there were four, you know, like uh, Judah's inheritance, what he was going to leave for his sons was divided into four. 
And the youngest brother got one-fourth, the middle brother got one-fourth, and the oldest son, the one that just died, was supposed to get double portion, so he got half. So now there's less people to divide the inheritance between. So it gets very interesting. So the second brother, he doesn't want to have a child that then, a boy child that is then replacing his brother, because that child will get twice as much as he will be getting. He gets a double portion. He gets his brother's firstborn son double portion, which you think, see, there's not much motivation to do that. Because with his brother gone, I mean, he and his brother have a whole lot more to split. So, look what happens. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And see, this firstborn child son would not be his. And what if he never had another, a secondborn boy, child? It, it's a risk. It's a risk he didn't want to take. It was. It was. It would take too much love, too much unselfishness. But he was selfish. So it says. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put. So he put him to death also. So God now is going to put Onan to death. And you know, you can imagine the selfishness involved here. The self-focus that I'm what matters. But also, if you remember, what about poor Tamar? So now she's been widowed once and was married to a given, taken from her father's house, given to a wicked man, and which we know we have no idea how she suffered from that. Then she was given to his brother, and even this process, the Bible's pretty specific about this, what's going on. Sexually, it seems like she was used, abused, mistreated. Seems like she was maybe even humiliated. I mean, this is a horrible situation. And I think what we find as we go on is that Tamar was in a very, very bad situation. So this happens with the second brother, and he and he also dies. So then let's read on. Verse eleven. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. Now what he's saying is, don't remarry, live, um, live as a widow. But see, she was still under his authority. She still belonged to Judah and to Judah's house. But he sends her home to live with her family with no hope except he says until my son grows up now then the next sentence teaches us a lot for he thought he may die too Sheila may die too 
just like his brothers if he marries Tamar. But the truth was, some of the versions of the, uh, when I read through this and other versions, it says that bottom line, he deceived her. That he had no intention. The point was he was terrified to give his third son to her. Because in his mind, maybe it was her fault. Her, his sons were dropping dead. She was the common denominator. He got her for one, he dropped dead. He got her for the other one, that one dropped dead. He's not giving that third one to her. And so he finds a way to get rid of her, but not set her free. So that she belongs to him and is under his authority completely, but lives at a distance with her family. So she goes. Now up to this point in her life, her Judah got her for his first son, gave her, commanded her to, to marry his second son, and now has sent her to where he wants her to be, sort of put her to the side. This young woman has been used, abused, humiliated, and forgotten. I would say she's incredibly marginalized, is the word we would use today. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. You know, up to this point in, in her life, we see that she seems to be very passive, very much doing what she's told, going where she's sent. Let's see what happens. After a long time, Judah's wife, verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Aldenite, were with him. When Tamar was told, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enum, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Because see, that was the promise. That was what, that's when he sent her away. Let Sheila get older. Let him get all grown up and ready. But that had happened. The time had passed. And she realized that Judah had no intention of fulfilling his commitment and responsibility to her. In verse 15, then Judah saw, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. <clears throat> Very direct. And when will you give me, and, and what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? 
your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend to the Oldermite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he could not find her. <clears throat> he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who, who was by the road, sat, who was beside the road in Edom? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, like I said I would, but you didn't find her. Let's stop there for a minute. You know, this is the story that has ruined her reputation over the years, okay? Part of it, I think, that we have not completely understood what's happening in the story. You know, when you think about it, she, she just had so many reasons that this could have happened. She could have been doing this because she wanted vengeance. She's just plain angry and she wants revenge. She wants to get Judah back. It could have been that she was desperate for a baby. I mean, we know what happens with widows that don't have a son. I mean, it's like that we could have, okay, maybe that would be the motive. That'd be the second, the second choice. The third choice was that she knew what was right and that she needed to further the line, the lineage of Ur and Onan, if possible. And so what we're going to see is Judah's reaction and the Bible's reaction to what she did. And I think from them we'll be able to see what the motive was. You know, it was really something. His wife dies, so he's grieving. And she hears about that. But then he makes plans to go up and have his sheep sheared. But somehow, she knew him well enough to be able to predict that if she did this, what he would do. She knew what he would do. How did she know? I think that we know how she knew. Because she knew him. You know, she had lived in his household. She had been married to two of his sons. She had watched the process and the interaction between the, in the family. Why had Judah gotten, gone to this place anyway? 
because he had done something horrible. And he was running. So I would imagine there's a lot of emotion involved in that on his part. I don't know whether he was depressed or angry. There's no telling what he was. There's no telling what she knew about the God of their fathers. We don't know if she had gotten enough to see, if they told stories around the table. We don't know if maybe she had seen a picture of who this God was and that she was a believer. It doesn't say that we know there's only so many motives she would have had to pull something like this. Now, it's clear what she did, right? You got that. She's like, okay, the minute she heard where he was going to be, she took off her widow's clothes, that all-black garment. She took it off, and she did what? Said that she put on a veil to disguise herself. So she puts on a costume. She puts on a veil to disguise herself. And then she goes to the entrance on the road to Timnah, to the entrance to Enam, and she knows what will happen. Because she knows it. She can predict it. You know, and sure enough, it's what he does. He thought he saw her. He thought she was a prostitute. She had her face covered. He didn't realize who it was. He went right over to her on the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. We all, most maybe, most of us have known men like this in our lives. Maybe not all. I won't say that. But most of us know, have known men like this. That would be so predictable. And I think she just, she knew and she went and he did. He did exactly what she thought. But notice, this is the first time she seems to be proactive. I think that this very passive woman became a woman of action. She really did. She got up, she took that, that widow's garb, garb off, she put on that, that costume, that disguise, and she went, she had a plan. She was going to do this. And when he, when he approaches her and he says, I want to sleep with you, she says, she starts sort of negotiating. Well, what will you give me? And he said, well, what do you want? And then she's very clear what she wants. Look at that. She wants the seal, his seal, his cord, his staff that's in his hand. <clears throat> now what that is, is the men all trapped, all had a, a cord that held the seal, okay? And it was a ring or a cylinder, but it was like a stamp. And you know how you, in a letter or a missive, in a note, it's like you put the, they would put the, um, the candle wax, and then they would seal it to make sure that no one, you know, that they knew it was from them. 
and then it wouldn't be opened. The bottom of a letter, a stamp that says, this is mine, this is me. That's what she wanted. And the staff represented his authority. It was carved especially. That's what those staffs were. They were carved and they represented who he was specifically and his authority. It was like what she wanted was his um, driver's license, social security card, birth certificate, uh, credit card, um, DNA. She wanted proof, absolute proof in their day and time of who he was. I would say she's pretty clever, you know? And he gave it to her. That's the most amazing thing. I mean, and when he offered, when he, you know, when he said, when she said, what will you pay me? He says, I'll give you a goat, you know? I don't know why he didn't just offer something he had with him. Wasn't he on his way up to, to work? I mean, surely he had some, but no. And then she gets exactly what she wants. And he sleeps with her, and she's carrying his child. Now, I know, like I said, we have culture shock when we go back, you know, into some of this stuff, because that just sounds awful. And there are parts of it that are awful. Um, but even then, the Levirat law that was not necessarily God's part, okay, but in the culture out there, what the law was, the, the, the father-in-law was also one of the people that could prolong that, um, that lineage. So now years later, over, I think it's in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, it, it talks about there not being a father-in-law that, that, that does this. So we don't know. All we know is that she knew she had to further this line, that she had to further Judah's line, um, his lineage, um, to protect that family. Or that was one of the options. So, <clears throat> we were over here. So then, you know, he sends, he sends his guy to, of course he doesn't go himself, but he sends his guy to take the goat, you know, and he can't find her. And the people there say, well, there's no such person. We Not only can we not find her, there's not been anybody here like that. So, it doesn't even hit him that maybe there's something fishy going on. And he's like, well, whatever. We're not gonna. We're gonna let her keep what she has. You know, I'll have something remade or something. Probably, who knows? You know what he's thinking. But he's like, we're not gonna go up there and embarrass ourselves by trying to find this this woman that was by the side of the road. Uh, he says, or we'll become a laughing stock. He certainly didn't want to be a laughing stock. So you sort of see a little bit more into his personality as well and his state. In verse 24, let's read on and see what then happens. Because you got this setting. So now she's at, she's, now she is, um, you know, it said that she put back on her clothes right afterwards. 
She took off the disguise, put back on her widow's clothes, and went home. So it's not like she was a prostitute. It's not like she slept with people. This one, this had to do with just Judah, okay? Well, that's important to remember, that she had her widow's clothes on before and after Judah, okay? So I want us to sort of get that clear, too, because sometimes she's just known as this woman that was deceitful and was temptress, that she was, um, you know, that she was just bad, that she was bad. So, verse 24 of chapter 38. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. So that's what he's told. This is the message he's given. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, one, what this shows is he had complete authority. Whatever he said was reality with her. She was under, even though she was living at home, she was completely under his authority. It was his decision what would happen to her. Also, you see this incredible double standard, okay? That somehow she's been involved in prostitution, but he has too, but that didn't come up because that doesn't matter, you know? It's this, the hypocrisy is, is, will knock you down, will knock you over, especially this harsh, immediate reaction that says, bring her out and burn her to death. So you can just sort of see, even all the way through, you can feel and see how dark Judah is. He lives in a bad place, a hard place. I mean, the, the sons, the evil, the, I mean, there's just a lot that's, that's very dark. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, he sent a message to her father. He, she sent a message to her father-in-law. So as she's being brought out, and her timing is absolutely perfect, evidently, but you could just imagine in a movie it being like, is, it gonna, is the message going to get there in, the, in time, you know, back and forth. It's not like they were had cell phones and they were calling back and forth. Or, so, but it says, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. So she gets a messenger to take the seal, the, the, the cord, and the staff with this message, I am pregnant by the owner of these. And even then, there's this, she doesn't say, and it's you, you hateful, evil old man. You know what I mean? Like, which would be, I mean, it would be, we would want to do that. We'd want to be just like, and tell everybody that it was you. No. She doesn't do that. It's like she wants, she gives him a chance to come clean. The owner of these. So, in verse 26, it says, Judah recognized them. Can you imagine that moment when he recognized them? And it all came back to him. All the pieces of this story came back to him. He recognized them and said, 
She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. But you know, in the ERV, it says she is right, I was wrong. In the GW version, it says she is not guilty, I am. GNT version, she is the right. She is in the right, and I have failed my obligations. The MSG, she is in the right, I am in the wrong. Another version, she is not guilty, I am. Another, she is in the right rather than I. Bottom line, when looking at these Hebrew words, so many of the the translators, what they've said, basically, the point, he takes the blame. This is me. This is what I do. I am the one that's wrong. But what he does is he uses the word righteous for her, which is incredible. Somebody like Judah would never use that word. I mean, that word meant a lot. If it was like what we share in the guilt, he would not have used the word righteous in reference to her because God is righteous. And righteousness is living out your faith, the Old Testament teaches. So you don't separate righteousness from God because righteousness means there's a holiness. You have acted as God wants you to act. So what he's saying is, this is my fault and she is righteous since I would not give her to my son Sheila. In that statement, what we learn is why she did what she did. We learn what the motive was. If the motive, motive had been vengeance, hatred for him, the word righteous would not have been used. That, that would not be what God would want her to do. That, that just wouldn't, wouldn't be the reason. If she was desperate for a child and willing to trick someone into sleeping with her on the road because they thought she was a prostitute. That wouldn't be a righteousness accredited to her. That the fact that she was doing what was right for this family, she took a stand, she became a woman of action, and she saved the family. But you know what she really did? She saved Judah. She brought the light back into his life. She made him look at who he really was. It, it's incredible, incredible here. He said that she is, she is righteous, and I am not. Since I wouldn't give her my son Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. So he took her, evidently, into his home, back into his home, and I guess as a wife, in a sense, but he never slept with her again. Because he knew, he knew who she was and what she had brought back into their lives. 
In verse 27, it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put his hand out, put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Remember what primogeniture is? Primogeniture. Remember that word? Okay, don't worry about it. That's the one where the firstborn son, whoever's firstborn, gets all these great blessings. Okay? Gets the birthright, gets the gets all this amazing stuff, more of the inheritance, the authority passed down from the dad, the whole thing. That's primogenitor. Except once again, we see God, which is a, a mainstay of patriarchy. It was the it was a main principle of patriarchy. But once again, we see God push patriarchy aside, and Perez was born second legally but he was the one that the lineage of Jesus came through you know it, it's just interesting it's interesting all the details but what I want us to see is that in doing what she did she had two sons which means that she could rescue both families she rescued her and his lineage, and she rescued Onan and his. All in one fell swoop. But now the truth is the story's not about her, right? Bible stories are never about the people, not really, right? They're about God, about knowing who God really is. This is God. God does this. He, Judah runs. He leaves. He doesn't want to maybe see the look in his brother's eyes, his father's face, the, the pain he's caused. The, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to deal with it evidently. And he goes and he just chooses a wife that they don't believe is even the right thing. They believe this is one of the greatest sins of all, is to marry someone outside of the faith. But he just does it. And and, and gets his, his, his sons to, I mean, he, it's like he just quits. He gives up. But what does God do? He puts Tamar in his path. And she could have just gone along or given up or whatever. Been hateful. Hated him. But instead, she risked everything right down to her own life to do what needed to be done to save this family line. Now we don't know if she did it because of a sense of nobility, because it was the right thing to do, or if she did it because of her faith in God. We know that he said she, what she had done was righteous, and usually that was accredited. Righteousness is faith lived out. Okay? 
So there would be an argument to say, yes, she had gotten it along the way through all their darkness, but through their stories of this amazing God and the history. Maybe she got it, who God is. But if not, God worked in her and through her and with her to do what needed to be done and gave her the courage, the bravery, the selflessness to do what needed to be done to save this family. And therefore, she is in the genealogy of Jesus. Which is very interesting, isn't it? A Gentile. As long as we think that Abigail was a Gentile, she was married to a Gentile, so we assume, but we don't know for sure. But it looks like there were four women in that genealogy of Jesus that were not just women, not just had things that had happened in their lives that gave them questions beside their names, I guess, and people's feelings, but also they were Gentiles, which was really the biggest question of all. It's almost like God, Matthew was making a point, and we ought to get the point, that from the beginning, God intended to love all of us. He intended to include everyone. The Messiah, well, he did come through this, this lineage. And Caleb did. You know, that was, Caleb was along the way in that lineage. Remember how amazing Caleb was, that man of strength, Joshua and Caleb, the one with the faith, and I can do this. Which is, but Achan was too. Do you remember who Achan was? Come on, sisters, come read. Read those Bibles. Achan, he's the one that, that sinned and hid it under the tent, stole the stuff and hid it under the tent, and then there was a big hoo-ah, remember? About what's going to happen. Who did it? Who did it? Who's the sinner? You know, and they weeded out this, this tribe, this family, this person. You know, it came down to Achan. Well, that was also the lineage of Jesus. The lineage of Jesus is full of all kinds of people, good and bad, courageous and cowards. You know, I think that we're supposed to see that Jesus loves all of us. He came for all of us. He wants to be with all of us. Tamar, on the way, she was used by God to do something amazing, but it took a great risk. It took her being brave and being willing to take action. Now, she was passive up until she wasn't. And I think that maybe in ourselves, we've got to figure out what does God need us to do? What is it? And maybe it's okay to be passive for a while, but at some point... We've got to take the garb off and put on what needs to be put on and get to work. We've got to do what needs to be done. We've got to make a difference around us. We've got to be brave to do whatever it is you're, you're needing to do. Nobody knows that, but you probably. What you need to do. But you know, Judah's life was changed forever. History was changed forever. And that's what we're going to look at next time. We're going to see how, because she came into his life, he had a moment where everything fell into place. The light dawned in his heart.
He got it. And, and we're going to see a man that is completely different than anything we ever saw before. But this is that turning point where he saw himself because this little Canaanite girl took a stand, was willing to stand up and do what was right when it was really scary. Thank you guys and good night. Let's have some fellowship. You're listening to audio from the Portland Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to our ministry, please visit www.portlandchurch.org.